Welcome to the New Books Network. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Bren Bangert. I am now almost 75 years old. Sometimes when I am speaking like now, I am listening to Paulo Freire 40 years ago. That's the voice of Paulo Freire, recorded in one of his final public appearances shortly before his death at 75 years old. Maybe you could ask me, but Paul, look, then you you think that you did not change? No, I changed a lot. I change every day. But in changing, I did not change, nevertheless, some of the central nucleus of my thought. I was a curious boy, and I am a curious old man. That is, my curiosity never stops. Maybe, maybe in the last moments of my life, I will be curious to know what it means to die. If you've ever studied or read about theories of education, you'll probably have heard of Freire. He's widely regarded as the founder of what's known as critical pedagogy, That's an approach to the practice of teaching that asks both teachers and learners to examine power structures and inequalities, all in the pursuit of freedom from oppression for everyone. Ferry's landmark work is Pedagogy of the Oppressed, a guide to the key principles of critical pedagogy. The more I think of what I did, what I proposed, the more I understand myself much more as a thinker and a kind of epistemologist proposing a critical way of, of thinking and a critical way of teaching, of knowing to the teachers in order for them to work differently with the students. Here on Darts and Letters, over the last year or so, we've made a lot of episodes about the tensions between activists and academics. We've told stories of conflicts between students and their universities, between researchers and the communities they study, and so on. There's basically been two sides to these stories, the academy and the activists. But what would it look like to really bring those two things together? Who could we look to for an example? Who did it best? We talked about it as a team, and the first name that came to mind for everyone was Paolo Freire. Freire himself was more than an academic. He was an artist and an activist, and he was a person who used his experiences of oppression and liberation to inform his work. So on this episode, I'm going to try to learn from Freire's life, his theory and his activism. And hopefully along the way, we discover some lessons for how to do radical politics, for how to bring our thinking and our action together. Who, who says that this accent or that this way of, of thinking is 
the cultivate one. If there is one which is cultivated, this is because there is another one which is not. Do you see? It's impossible to seek of language without seeking of ideology and the power. Paulo Freire was born in Brazil. He was brought up in the city of Recife. He came from a relatively, I would say, middle-class family. That's John Portelli, a professor emeritus, poet, and novelist. John taught a course on Freire in the Department of Social Justice Education at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, also known as OEZ. That's out of the University of Toronto. I called him up to ask him for a brief biography of Freire. He was... Um schooled in Brazil, and then went to a university where he studied philosophy. It's true that Freire came from a middle-class family, but he did experience the loss of that stability early in his life. In the midst of the Great Depression, Freire's family suffered and starved, along with millions of others. This was perhaps the beginning of his deep sense of solidarity with the oppressed. At some point before 1968, he was employed by the government to work on adult literacy. And that experience is what eventually gave rise to his first major work, a seminal work, namely The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, published in the late 1960s in Portuguese, and then eventually translated into English. He developed this adult literacy program, which was different from traditional literacy programs. It was different from traditional literacy programs because it was based primarily on the existential lived experience of the adults themselves. And that was the starting point of most of his work, namely the existential lived human experience. With all of its positive things and all of its negative things um, of oppression and violence of a variety of kinds. This is what then became known as critical literacy. Freire saw literacy as a key part of liberation. At the same time, he recognized the power structures at play when it comes to teaching literacy. My main preoccupations since I started working 45 years ago had to do with the critical understanding of education. Of course, thinking of education in general, I also had to think about literacy, which is a, a fundamental chapter of, of education as a whole. That's where the critical part of critical literacy comes in. Critical, not simply as used in a logical sense, namely the application of logic to what we do and how we think. It has that element, but also critical because it included in it a political dimension. And by political dimension, it does not mean party politics although he eventually was involved in party politics. But what he means by it is politics in its root 
etymological meaning. In his experience of developing the adult literacy programs, of course, he worked with regular farmers and he started developing the programs in relation to the context of the farmers themselves. So the literacy, they were taught to be literate in its fullest sense, not only to read words, namely the technical part of literacy, but also to read the word, W-O-R-L-D. And this is the critical element in his work, how it brought in politics, because, of course, as these farmers and adults reflected on their own experiences, of course, they realized they were living a life of oppression of some kind or another. The government eventually, after the coup d'etat in Brazil, stopped this program. Freire began experimenting with his method in 1962, but the Brazilian government was rapidly destabilizing. Right-wing militants were accusing the government headed by João Goulart of communism. And in 1964, Goulart was overthrown and a military dictatorship took his place. And suddenly, Freire's work was seen as a threat. And he was imprisoned for a while and then eventually exiled. For about 70s and 80s, he was exiled and he worked in a variety of places, including the so-called World Council of Churches, which is a conglomeration of various denominations based in Geneva, Switzerland, but he also worked in West African countries. And then eventually he published the Pedagogy of the Oppressed based on these experiences of developing and teaching adults literacy in a critical sense. Pedagogy of the Oppressed had an almost instant impact on the academic world. It was already being discussed as a classic in the United States by the early 1970s. And, as you can imagine, it was being burned and banned in a number of countries who were under military rule at the time. Let me give you a quick rundown of the book. First off, Freire argues that affirming your identity as a full human being is crucial to being a full human being. When you're being oppressed, whether it's on an individual or systemic level, you are being dehumanized. Freire says that to become fully human again, you need to identify your oppressors and work together to seek liberation. How do we do that? There are many different approaches, but Freire wants us to think about our models of education. He denounces what he calls the banking model, where the teacher deposits information into the minds of the learners, like putting money into a bank. Instead, he wants us to use a problem-posing model, which emphasizes a discussion between teacher and learner that blurs the lines between them. All of this draws on one of Freire's key concepts, the idea of conscientization, also known as consciousness raising or critical consciousness. When our communities and ourselves as individuals use reflection and then direct action to develop an understanding of our reality, when we examine and then take action on the root causes of oppression, this is consciousness raising. This kind of self-empowerment is central to all of Freire's work. We'll explore these concepts more later in the episode. In the 80s, there was a change of government again, and he was invited to go back. Eventually, he became the equivalent of a permanent secretary for the Ministry of Education, a big role. And uh, he died in 
We'll hear more from John soon. I find myself drawn in by Freire's own experiences of exile and his direct work with disempowered communities. And one of the things that most fascinates me about his impact is how expansive his ideas can be. Frarian principles have been applied and used as scaffolding in so many different fields of study. Academics and activists have been revising, reimagining, and building on Frary's work since its inception. And although Frary himself passed away in the 1990s, that work is still ongoing. As a journalist, I find that Frary's work feels really relevant to me. It asks me some really important questions, like, are we working in a context of liberation? Are we serving our community with the work that we do? How do our lives and experiences affect the way that we tell stories? I think Frary's spirit of self-critique and of curious self-inquiry isn't just a useful academic framework. It's a tool that we can apply to our professional and personal lives, too. Today on the show, we explore some of Frary's key principles of critical pedagogy with help from John Portelli. A better distinction would not be between oppressor and oppressed, but conditions that are oppressive and conditions that are liberating. Then, an exploration into Freire's impact on Canadian education. We're taking a look at three different disciplines using critical pedagogy to change how we teach and learn. Deborah Barnt tells us about how Freire's ideas influenced her work in environmental studies. You can't look at environmental issues as just physical, ecological. You have to look at the social, political, spiritual, etc. So it already had that interdisciplinarity. It already had a, an openness to other kind of ways of knowing and pedagogy. Then Mark Casterdale talks about critical disability studies and putting theory into practice. Sometimes a student may be pathologized, sometimes they might be deemed as being disruptive. And I wanted the teachers to gain an understanding that maybe there's other ways to listen to the student to engage in particular group activities, outdoor education, like reframe the, the ways that you're engaging in teaching and learning. And finally, Sharon Steinhauer brings us the story of Canada's first accredited Indigenous university and how Frary's foundations combine with decolonial praxis. So it's more than just a journey of the head, it's also a journey of the heart. And we understand the colonial history, those historical impacts, uh, intergenerational trauma, and we help students to not only understand that, but to reclaim cultural knowledge. All that and more, right after this. Hello, dear New Books Network listener. As you see, we're syndicated on the network. So if you're finding us for the first time, consider subscribing to our podcast. We cover the politics of academia, science, expertise, and intellectual culture. If you like this conversation, you will definitely like our other episodes. You can find them all at dartsandletters.ca. Subscribe today to never miss an episode. Let's get back to John Portelli from the University of Toronto. He is our guide to Freire's life and work. I wanted to know more about the key parts of Freire's theories. Let's talk a little bit about pedagogy of the oppressed. First of all, to kind of situate this work, when we talk about the oppressed in Freire's work, 
Who are the oppressors and who are the oppressed? What's the framework that he's using? Look, this is a very important point. I distinguish between earlier Freire, primarily in pedagogy of the oppressed, and a later Freire. Mm. I don't think there is any major contradiction between the two. But there are some important, crucial changes in his thinking, I think. And, and maybe the most important one is exactly on how we conceive the distinction between oppressor and oppressed. There is no doubt that um, the reading of pedagogy of the oppressed, what emerges from it, is a very clear-cut dichotomy between the oppressor and the oppressed. Mm -hmm. Now, the later Freire, I think, moved away from this rigid dichotomy, especially, I think, as he thought more about both issues of gender and issues of race. Not as much about race. Some have critiqued him that he should have been more explicit about issues of race. The more he thought, I think, about gender, and the more he thought about the very existential experience of being an oppressor and an oppressed, he realized that what I think, this is my reading of his later thinking, that a better distinction would not be between oppressor and oppressed, but conditions that are oppressive and conditions are liberating. Okay. So now the focus is not essentializing the person of being an oppressor or essentializing the person as being oppressed and full stop. So now when we focus on the conditions that create oppression and the conditions that do not create oppression, then of course you could have this situation where the same person in different contexts could be both an oppressor and an oppressed. And the classic example could be a working class man who is not treated well by the owners, whether it is working in the favela, you know, the, the fields. So there are elements of oppression. And then at the same time, this fellow goes home and beats his wife and beats his children. There's something there about, like you said, not essentializing oppressors and the oppressed, but also taking an individualizing view of something versus a systemic view that I think is also really interesting, right? And yet, at the same time, he is very concerned about systematic injustices, mm -hmm. systemic injustices. He's not denying that there aren't systemic injustices, that there aren't systemic conditions of oppression. Because in his later work, massively, he criticizes pragmatic neoliberalism, which is a form of conservatism, which has led to the dissemination of workers' rights, dissemination of unions, and so on and so forth, okay? And uh, yes, for him, this is a system, it is an essential systemic problem. He does not deny that. But he does say in the introductory comments to Pedagogy of the Oppressed that the radical is neither a subjectivist nor an objectivist. This is very, very, very crucial to Freire's thinking. Because some people will say, um, well, you know, I mean, he did not believe in objectivism, so everything is relative. No, that's not Freire. On the other hand, he is neither saying that because there is a universal human ethic, the context does not play an important role. On the contrary, in my view, it comes to his understanding and conceptualization and justification of what he refers to as universal human ethic 
on the basis of his critical reflection on the subjective existential experience. So how do you apply that to pedagogy? I know Ferry describes many different things. You know, in Pedagogy of the Oppressed, he talks about the bank system of education and then other alternatives to that. Can you talk a little bit about how we apply this to, you know, making this work sort of tangible and practical? Allow me to say also that, of course, Freire's thinking is also at the same time very existentialist in nature. He is an existentialist. Now, how do we apply this to pedagogy? There are, there are many ways. First of all, of course, it means that you never look at the student from a deficit mentality. He does not mean to say that we should romanticize the students. In other words, whatever the student brings with her, with him, and all the social and familial context is acceptable. No, that's not what he's saying. But he's not working from the premise that if you are working class, if you are poor, if you haven't been formally educated, therefore you have nothing important to contribute to the world. No, of course not. Everybody has a lot to contribute. So he does not look at students from a deficit mentality. So that that is one very important point. Unfortunately, it is a point which still many educators, those stereotypes I have seen everywhere. Let's talk a little bit about, yeah, this idea of consciousness raising. What are kind of the parameters of that term? I know it doesn't, like we've been talking about language over the course of this, it doesn't translate well. Yeah, well, it is all connected to the awareness that is needed, but also being critical about that awareness and therefore to bring in the political power dimension in learning and in teaching and in life in general. The issue of power and power is not always negative. Okay, I mean, there are ways how to develop positive power relationships, even among students, even between students and teachers, even between teachers and administrators, and so on and so forth. So yes, that is what the conscientization, one important point. The, the other important point with conscientization is, of course, that the person herself or himself has to come to that realization and that critical awareness. Which, of course, then opens up a whole can of worm, and namely, the question is then, what is the role of intellectuals within the process of conscientization and the role and activism? And this is where, right from the very beginning of my own studies, I had always found the work of Noam Chomsky extremely helpful. And I think here, on this point, I think both Noam Chomsky and Freire, I think, and for that matter, Bell Hawks, I think, come together here. I want to talk about this question that you've just raised about what is the role of the intellectual. Do you have your own answer you've come to for this? Well, yeah, my own answer is that intellectuals have an important role. And one of the roles is to realize their limits. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? And, and intellectuals have to work with other people and not work for other people. And this is an important point, which we find earlier on in even Freire's work and the whole critical pedagogical tradition. And, you know, so I think that is one of the important words. I think intellectuals have to be very, very cautious not to themselves fall into a deficit mentality. And I too have fallen into a deficit mentality. I mean, I, I teach and I research and I write about the problems of a deficit mentality. And every now and then I find myself... Um, falling into the trap of deficit mentality because it is so endemic 
that it becomes part of the ordinary life. And when we take for granted the ordinary life as it is and start believing that it cannot change, of course, we have lost the critical element that Freire and others talk about. But the minute you start talking about it explicitly, some, many, unfortunately, within the academic work, start accusing us of indoctrinating people, which is a huge fallacy. I mean, so now being explicit, being clear, giving reasons, giving examples, and justifying is now turned into indoctrination simply because it does not fit in within the framework of a soft liberal ideology. And liberalism does not indoctrinate people? Of course it does. I mean, come on. Liberalism is not neutral. Liberalism is a political project. It is a project of power that arose from Anglo-Saxon colonialists, and it continues to reproduce the principles of colonialism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you're saying, this process of critical reflection, self-reflection, reflection on the systems you operate within, and then awareness and holding of all of these tensions. As you've been saying, that's a key to kind of uncovering a lot of different ways that we can continue to teach and learn. Yes, and pedagogically, Soleran, pedagogically, you know, I mean, educators, unfortunately, especially school administrators and administrators, they want to have a smooth life, which means never dealing with controversial issues, which means not accepting the existential and political tensions we encounter as human beings, which means that they are applying a pedagogy and the leadership, which is anti-human. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But it is convenient. It is convenient for them. I imagine that's incredibly difficult to begin to acknowledge because, yeah, there's the system in place does suit some folks. And I worked in administration for seven years at the University of Toronto, and I don't deny that it is difficult to be an administrator. It is very difficult because you're always caught in between. But this was my biggest struggle because most of my colleagues would not agree with my way, how I looked at power and how I looked at leadership and administration, which eventually led me to leave. And I was disgusted. And I said, well, you know, I'm better off going back and working with students because doing administration did not give me time to work with students. I have written a novel which will be coming out soon, and, and it's based on these experiences. And the novel will be entitled University Mafia. Great title. I think that's something that has really been interesting to me speaking to folks for this episode has been the way that we approach narrative from the school of Freirean thought. Well, which is another thing. I mean, the storytelling and narration is very important. And I still teach one course only, although I'm retired. And that is a course entitled Narratives of Migration and Exile implications for education, and we primarily read literary work, novels, short stories, and poetry dealing with migration and exile. And the students are given a choice of writing either the usual traditional essay, and if they do so, they are not punished for it, <laughs> because I believe in a variety of forms of assessment, but they are also given the opportunity to write poetry, to write drama, and to write short stories and as part of their assignments, as their major assignment. And 90% choose the literary mode and they say it is very liberating. I love that. Yeah, there's room in this framework for forms of knowledge. Yeah, like art, poetry, storytelling, visual art. I think that that is something that is, like you said, very liberating. I think good literature in itself is a form of activism. 
That was John Portelli, author, poet, and professor emeritus in the Department of Social Justice Education at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, housed at the University of Toronto. Frere had a personal relationship with Canadian academia. He actually taught a course at OISE. And there's always been a dedicated community of so-called Frerian scholars here in Canada. Deborah Barnt was one of them. In the early 1970s, I was teaching at a community college in New Jersey, Brookdale Community College, and it was an alternative community college. In fact, when I was interviewed by the president, he asked me if I had read the book Teaching as a Subversive Activity. Definitely finding Ferrari just gave me some words, gave me some concepts for understanding both a critique of what he called banking education, you know, a, a kind of an understanding of knowledge that only certain people have, that is the teacher, and the challenge really of what is knowledge and whose knowledge counts, and his suggestion that really we are all teachers and we're all learners. That really spoke to me. Deborah is an activist and educator who works on environmental issues. She was a key part of the environmental studies faculty at York University. They bring Frarian ideas to the study of the environment. We'll talk more about that. But first, I wanted to learn more about Deborah's journey with Frary. When I decided to go back to do my doctorate at Michigan State University in comparative sociology, I decided I would like to investigate more like this practice that Paulo Freire talked about. And it was mainly like this whole notion of conscientization, this collective process of really reflection and action, a kind of individual and collective analysis that leads to action. Yeah, so that was my, my chance, really, to find out what we, he was all about. And that took me to... Latin America. I settled into Lima, Peru, and spent the year working alongside some of the literacy teachers of the actual, of the national program of literacy, which ironically was under what they called a, a military leftist huh. government. <laughs> it's a contradiction in terms for a lot of us, I think. But yes, Velasco actually had supported at the national level the use of this Frarian pedagogy in the National Literacy Program. So I worked alongside literacy teachers in what they called the Pueblos Jóvenes, so we're like the barrios, the poor favelas, which were basically straw structures that had been built in a desert surrounding Lima by many, the thousands of rural migrants, mainly indigenous people that had been pushed off their land in the mountain regions with the industrialization of agriculture, for one, and were there in the city trying to survive. Many of them didn't even speak Spanish, so they were learning to read and write in Spanish. So my experience with working with mainly women in those communities and working with them with photographs, with their stories, really for me was a profound transformative experience. And I always said, you know, I ended up focusing in my doctoral research on this notion of conscientization, like how, what do we understand it to be? Because I think it was being at that point, I'd simplistically interpreted or translated in North America's kind of consciousness raising. But consciousness raising implies that somebody's doing something to somebody else. Or, and it's often also a much more individualized notion. 
of developing consciousness. We had that in the women's movement, which I know is also much more collective, but the consciousness raising groups. So uh, in any case, when I decided to focus on conscientization, I realized over time that I was the one being conscientized. <laughs> really, an immersion in that context for me was an exposure to the whole deep colonial history of the Americas, to the deep intervention of my own native country, maternal country, the United States, in through many forms, through the church, through kind of corporate interest, and through definitely also political relationships, if not <laughs> direct intervention. Then the irony was that while I was in Peru actually researching the ways in which the Ferrarian methodology was being applied, Paulo Ferrari was in Toronto, in my oh hometown, my offering a course <laughs> at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education. And all my friends were going to this course and I was missing it. <laughs> but what it meant was that when I went back in 1977, I found a lot of people who were also very interested in the applications of his ideas in our own context. When I came back to Canada, and I connected with other so-called Ferrarians, I became a part of the participatory research group of the International Council for Adult Education. And I actually decided when I finished my PhD, I didn't want to be an academic. So <laughs> I don't want to study this, I want to do it. <laughs> and I think that's where my heart is. My heart really is in the practice of popular education. But I think actually over the years, I already always see myself as whichever community I'm in, I find a kind of an academic context. I'm pushing more for the activists, for the connection to community engagement, et cetera. If I'm in an activist context, I'm pushing for more reflection, <laughs> more, more deep critical thinking, you know? And so uh, um, they need each other. As you were trying to do this, trying to kind of put these principles into the work you're doing, did you come across any sort of points of critique that you have with the Frarian theory that you were working within? Certainly critiques from feminists about the sexist language that Frary used mm -hmm. at the beginning. But I have to say one of the reasons that I still have such deep respect for Paulo Freire as a person is that I found him so congruent in his approach and what he says. He said, we have to be critical. We have to be constantly reflecting critically. And we have to do that with ourselves. And he was open to critique. He invited critique. And he would respond to it. I love Bill Hooks's teaching in Teaching to Transgress. She does a whole chapter on how important Paulo Freire's ideas were to her. She says, look, when so much resonated for me as a person experience oppression because of race, because of gender, because of sexuality, etc. that I was hungry. I was thirsty for mm -hmm. these ideas. They really made so much sense to me. But yes, there were thing, problems with it, like some of the sexist language, and he doesn't completely understand racism. And she said, when you're thirsty, you'll drink dirty water. Mm. <laughs> and she also, in a way, used that as a critique of a binary way of thinking in the Eurocentric kind of thought, right? That to dismiss what was important and useful in his ideas because of the flaws was really throwing out really important things. I had another critique early on of Freire, and this relates to environmentalism. And now that I'm much more engaged, like with Indigenous people and around 
really trying to challenge or decolonize our understandings of our relationship to all other living beings and the land, I found that in his early work, he almost deified technology as an answer and a, a way to control nature. So his notion of nature in the early work was really very much representative of that enlightenment thought, the superiority of humans over the rest of the earth. And I think he also came to, to think about that more critically. Sort of imagine now if he were alive, I think we'd be right in there, mm. <laughs> in there with this kind of deeper understanding of the need to respect all our relations, which I see as at the core of the environmental crisis, and that we are taking leadership from Indigenous people and wisdom to really try to decolonize that thinking that we've been taught. Absolutely. I think that's a huge point about taking the value from these thoughts and also being self-critical and self-aware, but not letting your critique completely wash away anything valuable that you may have found. Let's talk a little bit about environmental studies and how you might bring these principles into the academy through environmental study. I'm curious, how, how did you kind of start to bring all this work with Frarian principles into that specific field of study? You know, as I said, in the late 70s, when I completed my doctorate, I said, I don't want to be an academic. In the early 90s, like about 20, 15, 18 years later, I started being interested in looking at teaching opportunities. I loved teaching. I was always working, well, identify, I would say more as what Frey would call a popular educator. Popular not meaning pop culture, but meaning of the people. Popular in Spanish is referring to connected with the realities of people in their daily lives and communities. My dear friend, Diane Marino, was teaching in the Faculty of Environmental Studies in the 80s. She passed away in 1993, and her position became open. I was already familiar with this faculty because it was an unusual faculty. It was the first Faculty of Environmental Studies in the country, but it started as a critique of the disciplinary approaches to environmental issues and said, we need to bring all disciplines in. You can't look at environmental issues as just physical, ecological. You have to look at them as social, political, spiritual, et cetera. So it already had that interdisciplinarity. It already had a, an, an openness to other kind of ways of knowing and pedagogy. The student could name their own approach. It was one of the reasons why I think it draw also early on many indigenous students who could then really apply their own ways of knowing and practices in their studies. So that I think I was in a very fertile place for applying popular education, although I remember the first couple of years I was afraid to even tell anyone what I did in the classroom. It was like a secret. <laughs> oh no, really? You're not doing that in the classroom? <laughs> you know, the hegemonic walls would be speaking. Yeah, especially when you brought other forms like art and bringing the body and the spirit into the classroom. Like Then I put my energy in the early 2000s into creating a, actually the first certificate program in Canada in community arts practice. And it was a program that was not only like an undergraduate certificate, but it was also open to community people who could come and take it as a certificate. Popular educators in Latin America have this word in Spanish. It's sente pensando. Sentir is to feel and pensar is to think. Sente pensando is feeling, thinking. So 
It's also taking some of those binaries, like the dualisms, enlightenment thought, reason and emotion, <laughs> and thinking and feeling and reintegrating them. You mentioned that it wasn't entirely easy to put this sort of curricula together. And I'm wondering, what was the pushback that you experienced when you were trying to kind of embody this new way of working within the academy? The pushback within our own faculty, I would say, was mainly from older males, <laughs> older white males, but with a lot of power, right? Yes. I had one of those senior faculty members write a 16-page memo critiquing me before I got tenure because I was involved in trying to change the hiring policy to in include more than just women as a category, ah, <laughs> Aboriginal okay, and visible minorities. And yeah, but the other thing about that is that the arts also then bring in the body, you know, and not everybody feels comfortable with that. And, and we had, we have also, you know, the faculty is proclaims to bring both the social sciences, the humanities and the natural sciences. But there are, in reality, there's tensions between those. And we understand why. So in many ways, they're useful tensions. And I think it's good that they're all in the same place. But, you know, the different methods for natural sciences, right? And, and mm -hmm. for humanities, like now people can write novels in our faculty of poetry. But, you know, maybe those that are studying water quality don't really understand that. We really created in our community arts classes a mm -hmm. community where people were engaged in creating rituals and creating, developing projects and working in the community on community arts projects and really bringing their whole selves into the process. And then we had to give them a mark. And that always felt to me like a horrible kind of <laughs> tension and conflict between pedagogies because it just was it wasn't the way we worked. We worked with each person individually in terms of what we thought they could do and what they were doing. And But I included a lot of self-evaluation, a lot of peer evaluation. There were ways to break that down a bit, but I found that. And then the other thing, of course, is that academia has such a kind of deep competitive nature and that that's the case for both for students in terms of competing for marks and faculty members and competing for status and funding and everything. So I think that's the other pushback is that we were trying to create collaborative processes within a classroom, within our research projects, et cetera. And there were a lot of systemic dynamics that work against that. Deborah Barnt is an activist, artist, and academic. She founded the Community Arts Practice Program in the Faculty of Environment and Urban Change at York University. As we've heard so far, applying Frary's concepts requires us to actively identify conditions of oppression and conditions of liberation. And from there, we put these observations into practice. After Deborah told me about her work to empower students on their own educational journeys, I was curious how this process could work for learners who have historically been left out of the mainstream academic narrative. I was particularly curious about disability studies. Mark Castrodale is a teacher, and he's also a scholar of critical disability studies and MAD studies. MAD studies is a radical response to fields like psychiatry. It seeks to reclaim the term MAD and looks at the lives and experiences of the people using it. 
I think with both critical disability studies and MAD studies, there's an ethic around how we would understand disability and mental health. And it repositions the person with a disability or individual who identifies as MAD as the expert. They're the individual who possesses the knowledge of their own experience in the world, and they have value. And this counters an approach that would pathologize an individual and see them as deficient or lacking and in need of fixing at the individual level. So sometimes people in critical disability studies, well, in disability, broadly speaking, you know, I think one way that people think of it is when disability is thought of around access and mobility, the the image of a wheelchair user would come to mind. And to think about the built environment as having steep steps and stairs that exclude. And instead of having that, making interventions like building ramps that kind of allow access for more than just wheelchair users, but people who might have mobility needs and, you know, people who might be using strollers and it broadens and opens up the world and the environment and makes it accessible for all. And I think we can look at ableism and sanism in ways that look more at a a societal view of how to counter ableist and sanist oppression versus fixing the individual. And so MAD Studies does that as well. And it it also refutes some of the knowledges and expert knowledges that are diagnosing, pathologizing, and categorizing individuals based on behaviors and and diagnostic criteria with the the DSM. What does that look like in terms of curriculum or a syllabus? Like what would be sort of a differentiating factor in a classroom? I know we kind of, unfortunately, when we're doing radical pedagogy still have to work within an institutional framework to some extent. So how do we reconcile that as learners or as teachers, either either perspective that you've had? I think there's a lot that can be done in terms of repositioning the knowledge of students in the classroom. And so you can draw on the students themselves and narratives of persons within classrooms. So if you understand maybe a history of the ways madness was uh, treated, you could look at things like hysteria, where women were diagnosed with hysteria, pathologized, and subjected to violence under this notion that it was curative, right, to give women cold baths or things of that nature. And I think it's humbling for sciences to think of the times that we've gotten things wrong in the past, horribly wrong and the detrimental and uh, repressive ways those have had on on individuals. So you can draw on narratives of trauma. You can have a social justice lens that looks at the experiences of, of women and people who are subject to racism and other forms of oppression in society and understand those as factors that contribute to mental health and might be detrimental to the lives of individuals. So then you can have approaches that um, emphasize rather than rather than looking at the individual than to think more around society about peer support and other interventions that might have positive implications for people's lives. Do you have any examples or stories you can share about examples of success where there have been reframings of curricula or pedagogy-based projects that kind of exemplify what you're talking about here? Well, one, one in particular I'm proud of, I did uh, develop a course called Critical Disability Studies in Education. And I did that at Western that was teaching teacher candidates. And so the reason why I thought it was 
important to work with teacher candidates is because they're they're positioned in the, in a way as as learners, but also you know future educators, and they're working in a capacity with students, and they might be going on practicum. And so you know if we think of a student, for example, with maybe presenting with behavioral issues, and you know the teacher doesn't think of their own pedagogy. Well, maybe the behavioral issues are linked to other things in that particular student. Maybe the student is unhappy with schooling. Maybe their home life, you know, they're experiencing issues in their home life. Maybe they don't feel safe at school and they're experiencing bullying. There's a range of factors why a student might be exhibiting particular what are deemed as disruptive behaviors in a classroom. And so you know sometimes a student may be pathologized sometimes they might be deemed as being disruptive and sometimes they might even have interventions that might be even pharmacological interventions to uh, amend their disruptive behaviors and i wanted the teachers to gain an understanding through curriculum through readings through the course that i developed that you know maybe there's other ways to listen to the student to engage in particular group activities outdoor education like reframe the the ways that you're engaging in, in teaching and learning and ask the student about their interests have them guide and inform the curriculum itself about their own learning taking ownership of their learning repositioning dialogue between the teacher and the and the learner and thinking about those power dynamics within schools and classrooms and that's compelling, right? I think it's a powerful way to reframe that student as a problem where they would have been understood, whereas now they might be valued and contributing. And um, it might be a way to see a behavioral shift in the student if they're more engaged and interested and feel valued and understood. And it also questions the ways that formal education might not be for everyone in the ways that it's designed, right? Particularly if we think of the notion of like a 75 minute lesson or something around that nature. It's not comfortable for all bodies to exist and to be silent, to be stationary and whatever some of those disciplinary regimes are that might be within the classroom. So my readings spoke about that. And I think of, of social justice, but I also think of spatial justice. And when I talk about spatial justice, it's this notion of friction of space where people have different needs and wants in the classroom space and they might be conflicting competing they, they might be in some ways you know very much different and so how do you make the classroom space a welcoming place where people can contribute and feel free and their bodies have to feel free as well free to express themselves and move and communicate and in different ways i love that that term is so as you said, compelling. I love the idea of spatial justice. And I think hearing you speak about how we can kind of center the student in this way, it makes me feel almost emotional. And I think there's something about that because it's a framework that wakes up that empathy, which I think sometimes can be missing. And so case in point, just talking about how this can be a reality kind of wakes up your human empathy, um, which I think is really key to a lot of radical pedagogy. I have a broader, maybe philosophical question to sort of close on. So as you know, I've been on this exploration of Frarian pedagogy, and I have been sort of talking to many people about all kinds of fields of study that are pulling from this idea of critical pedagogy. And one of the big things that comes up again and again when I'm talking with folks about Freire and, and this kind of idea of radical reimaginings of teaching and learning is that all of these frameworks 
have to leave room for there to be hope for our future outlook and all of this that we're fully aware about how problematic a lot of things are and how problematic the future is. It's not utopian, but there is room for amongst your frustration and everything else that you're holding. There has to be room for hope and hope in sort of an active sense. And so I want to know what your hopes are for the future. What do you want to see? And what do you think we're working towards right now when it comes to critical disability studies? When I think of teaching and learning, I think fundamentally, like teaching is an act of love. It has a pastoral role. You're trying to guide and inform. You're trying to be transformative around the ways that people act and engage in society. You're trying to shape the future through teaching. And, and that's one way that critical pedagogy is very much rooted in that notion of, of hope and aspirational and transformation. So it's not just about, you know, dismantling oppressive systems. It's it's about engaging in care and empathy and love and um, trying to be compassionate and think of other people's perspectives and grow as individuals and communities. And it's a way to reject the notion that disability is inherently bad. There's a community around disability and it's a vibrant community and it's an accepting community and it's a community that can care for one another and support one another. I think researchers need to develop methods that are reciprocal. I think teachers need to develop pedagogies that can listen to their students and incorporate a range of knowledges within the classroom. And so those are the ways that I see critical disability studies transforming. That was Mark Castrodale. He's a critical disability studies and mad studies scholar who currently works in disability services at Brock University. More than 50 years ago, something precedent-setting happened within the Blue Quills First Nation in Alberta. It all started with the building that formerly housed the Blue Quills Residential School. Well, it came to be in 1970 when... um... The federal government was going to shut down Blue Quills because it's a former Indian residential school. And so they were going to turn it over to the county. That is Sharon Steinhauer. She's a social worker and was the social work program lead at the university at Blue Quills up until 2019. Indigenous people in this area had a sit-in, a friendly sit-in, and uh, asked for the school to be turned over to them. That's in the history books. If you look up Indian control of Indian education, Blue Quills emerges as the first locally controlled Indigenous owned and operated institute in Canada. Wow, that's amazing. So they're trailblazers. Absolutely, absolutely. And so when the school came to be, when the university came to be, what kind of have been the core principles that played into the creation of the university? You said it's on a decolonizing journey. What has that looked like? So uh, when they first took over, it was an elementary school and it became, they added a high school and then in 75 started developing or offering post-secondary programs. So the pillars or the cornerstones, the foundations are around uh, teachings around land, language, relationships and ceremonies. And my work there began in 1999 to uh, establish a uh, social work program founded in Indigenous knowledge. 
how does that differ from what you would say is a uh, was a sort of like the previous standard of social work education? Okay, so it's more than just a journey of the head. It's also a journey of the heart. And we understand the colonial history, those historical impacts, uh, intergenerational trauma, and we help students understand not only how communities and families and Canada has been impacted by the history to not only understand that, but to reclaim cultural knowledge. So for many students, when they come, they have a personal story, and then they realize it's not just a personal story, it's a family story, a community story, Mm -hmm. and they start to find common ground. Sometimes it's their first introduction to cultural knowledge, because in many of our families or communities, we no longer have teachers, or we have teachers, but they're not accessible to us. So... There's protocol around all of that. So a family, you may know of an elder or a ceremony, but if you're not connected, you may never have attended. So so that's what we do is reintroduce or I wouldn't say reintroduce, but help people reclaim their knowledge, right? Their knowledge base. So it's been an amazing journey. It's been beautiful. That is beautiful. And it sounds like there's that space there for the students to kind of also be educators and be empowered in their education, right? Which I think is really important. Yes, 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 yes. We want them all to be activists. That is, that's beautiful. I think that's so important. And I mean, the path that I found you upon was I was uh, doing some research into Yellowhead Tribal College. And then I, on that path, was told, well, you need to take it all the way back and, and learn about the University at Blue Quills. And so it's kind of, like you said, it's been a trailblazer. It's inspired other programs. Is that right? Yes, yes, yes. So what's even more amazing, though, particularly around the social work journey, is there's five First Nations uh, institutes, colleges in Alberta. And so the five of us and elders from each institution were charged with developing the social work education founded in Indigenous knowledge. And so the elders said to us, you need to decolonize your minds. You need to think about what would social work look like, feel like, be like if we weren't all trained in Western methods. So I think I was the only non-Indigenous person in the group. So maybe I had the furthest to go. (laughs) I want to know if you're comfortable. I want to hear a little bit about what that decolonization process was like for you, because I imagine there's a lot of education, there's a lot of kind of balancing of your previous education and also ideas of privilege and power relationships. So how did that process feel for you? Well, I, you know, uh, I think I want to say that uh, I took my degree, my undergrad degree was actually one of the brokered programs that Blue Quills negotiated with the University of Calgary. I did that program, but we also, I didn't know until later that we also did extra courses in community development and in macroeconomics. We did a Marxist analysis of Canadian history. And I did not, I did not have the experience to compare that to mainstream education, right? I thought I I was actually surprised that more people didn't know about colonization when it was all part of of what I learned by being in that brokered program at Blue Quills, which had the enhanced courses so that as a learner group, we would know what the issues are we're dealing with, right? 
And I, I thought all of all social workers in Canada knew the colonial story. That was the most shocking thing, I think, about uh, how much I realized Western education doesn't have that full appreciation for the depth of, of uh, the colonial impacts and how insidious colonialism is. Right about the time you think you've got it figured out, you, you realize you're going down another rabbit trail, right? Absolutely. So you kind of have to be constantly reflecting and reevaluating, right? Yep. Yep. And of course, you know, part of the uh, Indigenous psychology, the culture is, it's really collective. And so it's never just about the individual. It's, it's also about that collective journey. We're all in this together. We all work together. We lift each other up. And that is very different for our students to experience. They're used to competitive grades. Grades are important. Well, we think grades are important too, but the whole person is important. So one of the things, you know, when you were asking about um, Paulo Freire? Yes. Freire uh, suggests that our, our vocation in life, right, and purpose in life is to become fully human, a process he called humanization. So that's regaining the freedom, justice, and liberty that's been denied to people through the dehumanizing process of oppression. Sharon Steinhauer is a social worker and was the social work program lead at the University at Blue Quills up until 2019. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. We are a production of Cited Media and we're produced by Gordon Caddick, Jay Coburn, Mark Apollonio, and Ren Bangert. That's me. As always, our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber. Graphic design by Dakota Coop. Our usual host and editor is Gordon Caddick, and I am Ren Banger, your guest host for today. This episode received support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. It's part of a series of episodes on the relationship between activism and academia. Our scholarly advisors on this series are Professors Leslie Wood at York University, Sigrid Schmaltzer at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, as well as Charmaine Khan, Sammy McBriar, and Susanna Mulvale. We're also backed by our generous patrons. Join us, join them. Go to patreon.com slash darts and letters. Thanks for listening. Check back in in two weeks.